Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Aaron, welcome to Strategic Financial Leadership. I am excited to have this interview with you today. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. So you have a lot of great experience. And so you've worked in investment banking, private equity, and real estate now. But what stood out to me really was the the start of your journey and how you were in the U.S. Army, correct? Correct. But not just the U.S. Army, actually the Special Forces. So first of all, thank you so much for your service and, and you know your sacrifice there. But also, um, I want to go deeper and I want to explore kind of your journey and, and how you got started basically, you know, like what led you to, to go into the armed forces and talk to me a little bit about your upbringing. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that's correct. I started my journey, um, by joining the army after high school. Uh, I think like many Americans, I grew up in a blue collar working class family. Uh, and if I wanted to attend college, I was going to need to pay for it myself. Uh, so at that time I really decided the best path uh, to do that was joining the military. And really, just after after three years and a deployment to Bosnia, I was able to enroll in college, um, and I also enlisted in the National Guard, and that enabled me to increase the tuition assistance that I got from from joining the military. Uh, at that time, I decided to join a special forces unit. Now, that was in a support capacity to be able to go through airborne training. At the time, I thought, you know, what a great option! I could jump out of planes on the weekend, and then also get tuition assistance for college. So. It sounded amazing. However, right after that, uh, 9-11 happened. And our unit was uh, activated and deployed to Afghanistan shortly thereafter. So that delayed my education. But at the time, I was truly honored to be able to serve my country such a devastating after such a devastating incident. So upon returning, um, I did go heads down on my academics and then eventually graduated top of my class. So overall, this experience really just shaped my life and instilled that mental fortitude and I think grit um, to really navigate through any challenging or demanding situation. I mean, what's a board meeting compared to a situation where your life is on the line? Um, so I really think that's that's fundamentally what what it did to shape you know who I am today and and has helped me throughout my career in being successful. So we, when you were in high school and you know here comes graduation, were you one of those students who didn't really know what was next for you? So you're like, ah, I guess I'll just go into the army. Or was it a little bit more intentional than that? I would say it was definitely intentional to go to college. Um, in regard to joining the military, that was not intentional. It was more about 
I would have had, I, I needed to fund college in some capacity. So that's either working full time through college or joining the military. And uh, the military seemed like the best option at the time. We were we were not in a wartime environment. Uh, it seemed like a pretty safe bet. So it was something that you know it came more towards I think maybe the end of my tenure in high school, in, in which it provided a great solution for something that you know was a problem in regard to fund, being able to fund college. So what did the army teach you about leadership, teamwork, collaboration? I mean, like you said, you know, you're like, what's, what's a board meeting compared to like being out in the field, being in, in real life situations where you can be killed, right. Or badly injured or, or whatever that is, you know, what did that whole experience teach you about leadership and teamwork and all that stuff? Yeah. So, you know, I think um, I learned a lot from the military from a leadership standpoint, but maybe more from a teamwork standpoint. The military is very rank and file in regard to, you know, talking to your leader, you're at parade rest or standing at attention. So it's definitely a different type of leadership that you get from being in the corporate world. But from a teamwork perspective, because you are so close to every member in your platoon and you're spending, you know, your time around the clock, um, whether it's you know out in the field on maneuvers, you know deployed, you are you know entrenched with that team, and you know they kind of say you know everyone's you know green in the military, and regardless of you know uh, your background or your demographic, you know everyone's kind of at the same playing field based on your rank, and you form a pretty strong bond and learn to overcome any diversity that they may be faced with to get through you know certain scenarios. Uh, so one one perfect example is you know when you go through basic training or um, you go through advanced training, they tell you you're only as strong as your weakest link. You know the weakest person in your platoon, you're having to do extra work to get them to the same strength as a team. Um, and I think that's just in, entrenched in you to always help anyone that's below you or that may not be succeeding as well to be a member of the team and to be just as successful as you. So, you know, I think I've taken that throughout my career and just trying to be that player coach from a leadership standpoint versus maybe specifically taking the rank and file approach. And what do you think makes a difference between a good team and not so good team, a high performing team, a low performing team? What, what's the difference there? Yeah, I think it's really trust. A high-performing team has trust that you always have their back. So in the military, you know, I think that's that's also you know another uh, point that maybe I didn't raise is you know you have to trust the person that's in your foxhole. You have to trust the members of your unit to have your back in any situation. And I think that's just as important in you know in the corporate world in which you have to trust your team. They have to, but you have to build that trust. Um, and that's something that doesn't come overnight. That's something that you know, you have to, as a leader, be able to put your team in situations that, you know, they're able to learn, that they're able to capitalize on whatever value proposition they have. You know, certain members of your team might want to advance their career. Certain members of your team might want to learn more about a specific skill set. Um, so investing in that um, helps build trust. And I think trust helps build just a really cohesive team. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, without trust, I mean, so many things fall apart. So I, I think that's a great point. So l- let's keep going. So after this time or during this time, you're, you're pursuing a degree in finance from Colorado State University. So what drew you to finance 
And were there like specific aspects that you're particularly interested in? Like, did you want to go more the the corporate route, private wealth management, investment banking? I mean, what, what was your thought? Because there's a lot of different directions, obviously, you could go when it comes to finance. Yeah. So, you know, I think I initially chose finance largely just due to the practical knowledge that you gain. Uh, that's really applicable, not only in your career, but also in your personal life. So finance is something that was just attractive to me uh, based on that practical knowledge that you build. Um, and when I was in college, I was more focused on learning about portfolio management and public equity investing. Um, so I had joined a student-run investment fund um, in which we managed a real portfolio of equity and investments. And at that time, my goal was to be an equity analyst and, and to work in the public markets in that capacity. However, um, upon graduation, I was actually pretty fortunate to land a role in investment banking, which is a slightly different career path in the capital markets, but definitely opened the door to many subsequent opportunities throughout my career. So you know, I'd say in, in college, I didn't know which discipline or which route I wanted to go into finance specifically, but I knew what I wanted to learn. And I wanted to learn more about you know, investing in valuation and P&Ls. And that, you know, is kind of, I think, what took me to where I'm at today. So for anybody who's listening to the podcast right now, and they're interested in getting into any of these segments of finance, is there any advice that you can give them on how to get there and how to be successful? Yeah, absolutely. So investment banking is an extremely competitive industry. Uh, banks are typically fairly selective with their candidates. If that is your primary goal, you know, I, I'd probably recommend striving to be towards the top of your class or attending a top tier school or really just fundamentally having a network, which enables you to get your foot in the door. It's also extremely helpful if you have an internship beforehand. If you are selected, it's definitely something that you need to be prepared to really work around the clock. It's uh, you know seven days a week, uh, but I, I really viewed it as just advanced education in both finance and business. So I was pretty fortunate to step into banking, and and it was essentially like a, another tour of duty, but in, the, in a financial capacity. And I learned a tremendous amount about finance and business through um, that experience. Now, the experience in investment banking is typically a prerequisite to get into private equity. You know, banking is fairly transactional. You become a master at industry analysis, valuation, producing sales documents. Um, on the private equity side, at least for me, I learned a lot more about capital structure and financial engineering and just general business operations. So overall, you know, they were both just great experience and just a phenomenal financial education for me to propel my career going forward. But, you know, after six years and working 80 plus hour weeks, you know, I, I really wanted to have a better work-life balance. Um, and, and also just a deeper impact on operational growth for businesses. Um, so that's when I transitioned to the corporate side of finance and have been in various uh, strategy and finance roles uh, on the corporate side ever since. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I went through a program um, very similar. Accounting and finance was my undergrad, and then I did a master's in accounting, and then I did my MBA. So I had a lot of different academic experience, uh, building financial models, you know, industry analysis, doing all that kind of stuff that you mentioned. But I think there's a big disconnect between like the academic world and then going into, you know, private practice. So maybe explain a little bit of that. Like, what did you see that really translated over from like an academic standpoint, like what you learned in school into these different fields, investment banking, private equity? And what were some things where you're like, wow, why didn't they teach this in school? This is completely different, a different way of operating. 
Yeah, a- absolutely. So, you know, I think what I probably learned the most is, at least coming into banking, is really being an advanced user. One, I guess, being an advanced user in Excel. And, and that tool is something that's taught in college and higher education. And, you know, but you're not ingrained in it. You're not using it, you know, um, 12, 12 hours a day, you know, five days, seven days a week. And becoming a master in Excel, I, I think when you get to that point, really helps your career within finance and efficiency. If nothing else, just efficiency sure. um, going forward throughout your career. So I, I think that was probably one of the, the biggest changes or, or things that I had to learn. Um, so that was more from a tool standpoint. From a operation standpoint, I don't think you really understand business until you're working with businesses, meaning what, what is the key value drivers for a business? Really understanding what drives revenue, what drives costs. Um, and, and you don't learn that necessarily in school, right? You, you learn about revenue, you learn about expenses, but you don't understand necessarily fundamentally what was driving them and why they're needed, understanding an investment case. And uh, you may learn about what an investment case is, but how do you apply that investment case? And how do you prioritize that investment case against other options? So there's just, I think, just a deeper level of knowledge that you get, or at least I was able to ascertain by experiencing it firsthand versus just being taught about what something is. Sure. And, and what's interesting, and I don't know about you, it wasn't until I got into my MBA program that we really started diving deep into strategy. And so I, I think there's also this disconnect out in the world when it comes to like strategy and value creation. What I mean by that is, so when I was in uh, public accounting, I was working in this uh, in the financial services sector. We had a client, they're a massive client. They were uh, the result of a, a private equity transaction um, for multiple billions of dollars. And uh, so here's this company, they have a ton of debt. They have a ton of pressure from the private equity firm to grow, to create value. And I just remember meeting with the leadership team, looking at the different reports and, and KPIs that they were using to measure success. And it was like, there's this massive disconnect between this like strategy that the firm had, which was more almost like marketing gimmicky stuff, right? Like mission, vision, values. And then there's a few things, but then like the financial side, like tying those two things together, there was this like big disconnect. And I thought, wow, you know, if a firm that's as sophisticated, as well-capitalized, as talented as this really struggles to tie the two things together, there's really something here. And that's really when I started getting on this kick of like strategic financial leadership and like, what does it really mean to integrate the two things? And I I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Like, what does strategic financial leadership mean to you and what kind of experience have you had at the intersection of strategy and finance? In my opinion, strategic finance is all about looking at the windshield versus the rearview mirror. And I found a lot of uh, financial leaders have become so consumed with yesterday's variances that they miss that invisible asymptote that is right in front of them in their company's growth profile. So, you know, how do you compile that good forecast or strategic plan if you don't know the opportunities or risks for the business? So I, I think it, it's just critical to understand your, your customer. So one way of understanding that is understanding your customer, um, both from a qualitative and quantitative standpoint. And I think it's important that financial leaders understand their customer, not just what's being produced on the financial statement. So, and that could, that could be through simple metrics as NPS. It could be 
engagement metrics. It could be LTV. It could be surveys. It could be usability labs. But learning what the customer wants really helps identify those monetization opportunities uh, and, and also risks from various investment strategies. So you know, fundamentally, I think data-driven insights like that deliver breakthrough ideas. And breakthrough ideas ultimately define, at least in my opinion, uh, world-class strategic financial leadership. When you bring up a really good point, because you know, I, so I was a CFO of a large company and I had a big team. And the team, they, they were very smart, very talented, very capable. They worked really, really hard. And um, oftentimes it was so easy to lose track of what you just said, the customer. You're creating all these reports, you're doing all the compliance stuff, all the transactional things, you know, you're making sure things balance, everything ticks and ties, but then you're you're missing out on the main thing, the customer, right? Like understanding how do we drive greater value? How do we provide better experiences, better products, better services to the customer? And, you know, how can we support these business leaders who are out there, you know, making decisions or how do we support the front line who's out there like delivering on these products and services and experiences? And I always thought that was interesting how easy it is to just get so caught up in like the daily grind that you forget the customer and all that. And and, and I also see that in strategy, you know, like companies, they'll show me their strategic plan and they have this great strategic plan, but it's all about them. It's all about the company. And it doesn't really touch on the customer as much as it should. So I, th- I think you bring up a really good point. Yeah, I absolutely. Completely agree. So what mistakes have you seen companies make when it comes to uh, strategic planning? And how would you go about correcting these mistakes? I think some of the biggest mistakes I've seen in strategic planning is really not modeling out scenarios that bookend opportunity sizes, and then also not compiling or investing in a set of coherent actions that actually support the plan that's developed. So first off, from a scenario modeling standpoint, it forces discussion and alignment around key assumptions. Um, So what do we need to believe for that initiative to be successful, right? And then that typically leads to further discussion around what actions are needed to execute the plan, right? What are the resourcing needs? Who's accountable? Are they aligned? Uh, you know, are there any blockers? Are there any dependencies? Should we build it? Should we partner? Should we buy? And those coherent actions tied to the plan, I think, are critical to have to successfully implement a plan. And I've seen a lot of companies create amazing plans, but not specifically lay out those coherent actions after the plan's developed to actually go after, you know, their North Star. So, you know, I think the best way to really correct that mistake is really just look, identifying, documenting, investing in these items, you know, during the planning process um, and really just allocating the appropriate amount of time uh, and resources to the planning process versus having someone do it as their side job, um, you know, and, and actually investing in that, um, that planning process and to make sure that the plan gets translated into execution. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this and let's go back to um, your previous comment about teams. So I've talked with a lot of CFOs. I've interacted with them. They've opened up to me. You know, I've been a CFO. I've been in different roles in the world of finance and in leadership. And I think sometimes like in the strategy room, there can be disagreement and dissent when it comes to, you know, initiatives that the company is pursuing. So what advice would you give 
to a CFO, um, if you're sitting in a position and you're just thinking, wow, look, you know, the CEO just doesn't get, you know, the true initiatives that we should be pursuing. How do you navigate that? Do you just like go along to get along or, you know, do you think a, a CFO should have more of a voice when it comes to being involved with strategy and to be able to, you know, speak up and provide feedback on initiatives that will truly create value creation? Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Yeah, I, I think it's critical that every member of the team speaks up if they're not aligned with the strategy. But fundamentally, I think it comes down to data and what data do you have to support your hypothesis? So, um, you know, my stance is always being pragmatic, right? You know, I may not know if this is right or wrong, right? So, and if we don't know if it's right or wrong, then we need to test it. Um, and if someone believes something is the right North Star, you know, what data do they have to support that hypothesis? That's typically my first question. And if they don't have data to support the hypothesis, my approach is always, well, let's test it. Let's see if we can bootstrap a test to understand, you know, will we get that level of conversion that we think we might get? Will we get the retention that we think we may get? Will we be able to move into a new category that we think we can? If there's a way to test it at a very low level of effort, that's always my first approach. Um, and from there, you can decide it's easier to get alignment because the test may say, hey, they were right. I was wrong. Um, or it may say, you know, they're wrong. And, and at that point in time, you have the data to support it. So, you know, I always take a data first approach, if at all possible, to try to get that alignment and, and never, you know, directly, I guess, confront a hypothesis because um, at that point in time, it's just a hypothesis. Um, and you know, without testing that, you don't know necessarily if it's going to be right or wrong. I, I, I always approach conflict with data, if at all possible. So, so let's dive deeper into this. So what role do you believe that data plays into strategic planning? I mean, I, I know you're saying, hey, you should start with data. You should use data to support or to disprove different hypotheses. You know, are there pieces of data that you think should be included in every strategy and financial plan? And if so, what data should um, these leaders be bringing into these strategy discussions? Yeah, I'm obviously a big believer in data. And I think my wife would actually say if I had a mistress, it would be Excel. Um, and so as you can imagine, <laughs> I lean pretty heavily into data throughout the strategic planning process. Uh, and you know, I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think the most important data point is customer feedback. Again, that could be NPS, it could be engagement metrics, it could be LTV, but that should be one of your most important metrics that you're looking at for within the planning process. You know, from there, you have to understand how big is the market? So what's that addressable size? You know, how large is this idea? Um, and that's really valuable for prioritizing initiatives, right? You may have 20 different initiatives that you wanna pursue in your strategic plan. Well, how do you prioritize them? Well, you kind of need to know how big the market size is. Um, so, you know, I think that would be probably the second metric 
that I would look at in the planning process. And then the last piece, ultimately, I'd want to know what's the hypothetical growth profile, you know, and that could be revenue and profitability. It depends on the industry, it depends on the company size. Um, but fundamentally, your growth profile ultimately drives your valuation. So that's that's probably the most important piece to understand. I think these are like basically the minimum requirements. Um, I'd ideally want to have a deep understanding across all business drivers uh, in planning the strategic plan, but you know, understanding your customer, understanding the market, and understanding the growth potential would be probably the three biggest pieces of data that I'd want in any planning process. Yeah. And I like that a lot. I like how you said like evaluating the upside of these different pursuits, because you know I'm with you where I believe that pursuing a big initiative versus pursuing a small initiative eats up almost the same amount of resources. You know, and and I relate it to running, so I, I like to run. And um, right now, I'm I'm training for a marathon. In fact, I'm doing the marathon here uh, this weekend. And That's awesome. What's interesting is that it's like training. And th- this is just my thinking, and this could be totally wacky. But if I'm going to run, okay, if I'm going to do a, a marathon, or if I'm going to do any type of race, running a half a marathon versus running a full marathon almost takes the same amount of effort right? Like I still have to set my alarm for early in the morning. I still have to put on my running shoes. I still have to go out there, right? That's like getting that momentum going that, it, you know, getting rid of that inertia is really the, the big obstacle to overcome. So it's like, I still got to get out there. And then once I'm out there, you know, the incremental difference in training isn't really that significant compared to doing a full marathon. So it's like the same thing in business is true when companies, when I'm looking at their initiatives, I'm like, wow, you're pursuing like 15 initiatives. I'm like, how do you keep your team focused? (laughs) Why don't you focus on like three to five? And why don't you look at the ones with like the biggest upside? Because, you know, you're pursuing this over here, but then over here on the side, you're like bleeding cash or like, you know, customers are are leaving your company. Retention is suffering or productivity is, is down, but you're over here focusing on these other little initiatives that don't really have that great of upside. So I think it's easy for companies to just become, you know, like overly ambitious by pursuing too many things, or they lose focus on what matters most. What's your experience with that? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I think that's absolutely a, a great assessment. And uh, I've, I've seen that happen uh, numerous times in <laughs> which the prioritization is, is not appropriately uh, developed within the, within the planning process. And yes, there may be small value drivers that we could pursue, but they could also be distractions and they can absolutely take up as much time as something that's going to drive tremendous value for the business. So yeah, I I think part of a great strategic plan is aligning everyone around the North Star and making sure in any initiative that comes down the pipe afterwards or even during the process um, that the team is always looking at that against the backdrop of where does the business want to go and making sure that everyone's aligned on, we want to go here because it is the biggest opportunity and everything and and, and not necessarily not doing other opportunities, but making sure that those opportunities augment where we want to go as a business um, and, and don't become a distraction. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because I've worked with companies and, um, you know, they, they lose focus on what's most important. So let me give you an example. You know, there's a company and they have 500 employees. And if these 500 employees, they work 
you know, full time, that's 2000 hours a year. So basically a, a million labor hours that the company's paying for, and they're trying to put into use to deliver products and services. So they got a million labor hours that they're trying to be productive with. And this particular company, they were struggling financially, right? They're having some issues, performance issues. And, you know, they're over here trying to focus on like the materials, right? The, the inputs that went into delivering their products and services, and so they're trying to renegotiate with some of their vendors. They're trying to beat up their vendors. They're trying to save, you know, percentage points here and there. They're trying to like cut down on waste. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, guys, stop. Like, look, what, look at what you're doing. You have a million labor hours over here. So even if you save a few percentage points on your material, because you could only beat your vendors down so far, right? You could only, you know, replace products and value engineer so much. But when you look at the labor, it's like, let's look at your labor. You have a million labor hours. What if when you're estimating projects, you're off by $1 on your labor hour? You know, like you're, you're, you misprice it by an, a dollar an hour. Well, that's a million bucks right there. Number two is you're spending all this money on labor. Like what if you could become 5%, 10%, 20%, 30%, 50% more efficient by, you know, reducing waste, automating you know, eliminating the bottlenecks and just maximizing throughput when it comes to labor, like what is the upside there? And and I think that's a great example of how organizations, they can get so focused on things like cutting GNA or, you know, trying to renegotiate contracts with, with vendors or doing all these things like to cut like GNA cost or like small input cost. And then over here, they got like massive issues when it comes to productivity and they can really improve margin very quickly, or they can accelerate growth. And those to me are like the value drivers that can really, you know, accelerate a company versus like going for the easy stuff. Like, Hey, let's, you know, let's turn off the lights. When we leave the office, we could save 10 bucks, you know, on our utility bill, or let's cut marketing or advertising or whatever it is. What are your thoughts on that? Exactly. Completely agree. Um, from my perspective, you can't cost cut your way into growth as a business. And I'm a big believer in revenue before costs. Costs are absolutely important and optimizing the structure of your business is something that everyone should, or any good CFO should, should, uh, should work towards. But fundamentally, what's going to be the next step change in the business? That's going to be your next growth initiative. And that's likely a, a revenue enhancement initiative, not a cost savings initiative. A cost savings initiative um, is something that has a one-time effect or a one-time effect that is consistent over time, um, but won't propel perpetual growth in the business. So, yeah, you know, I fundamentally, you know, from my perspective, you know, looking at revenue drivers first are always where you find the biggest opportunities. Yeah. And I agree. And I, I think with, when it comes to you know, revenue growth. And then if you can combine like price premiums um, into it, that's where you can really see a massive impacts on, you know, your financial performance. And I think when it comes to selling, it's like when perceived value exceeds price, right? Perceived value exceeds price, customers buy. And when price exceeds perceived value, whatever that perceived value is, it doesn't even have to be real value per se, but 
when price exceeds that, then customers don't buy. So then companies, instead of maximizing and increasing that perceived value through like brand quality, customer experience, all these different things, they instead go to cutting prices, offering discounts, doing promotions. You know, why do you think that is? And why do you think companies fall into that trap? You know, I, I think it fundamentally goes back to not understanding your customer. Um, I think you, if you had a deep understanding of who your customer is, you know what products they want or what features they want or what potentially could be appealing to them. So, I, you know, I think there's a large constituent that gets you know lost in the current data, um, you know, of revenue uh, drivers and expenses that are on their PL, but lose focus on the customer, which you know isn't transparent in a PL. You know, that's something that those are metrics that that you have to gather outside of your typical financial process. But they're critical to um, capturing future growth. So you know I, again, I think it really just comes back to knowing your customer, understanding your customer, and, and really having that customer mania um, at, at, to drive your business forward. Absolutely. So recently you have joined the Bigger Pockets team. So congratulations there and a great company. So can you tell the audience what is Bigger Pockets? What does the company do? And, and talk a little bit more about your role. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I joined Bigger Pockets as a CFO. And, and Bigger Pockets is a, a complete resource for anyone looking to succeed in real estate investing. Um, we have over 2 million members. And what's really unique, we created a very unique market network. Um, and that's comprised of really a passion community, a diversified marketplace, and also subscription products. We have curated and user-generated content. We are one of the largest independent publishers in the U.S., and, and, and we specifically focus on real estate investing. So you know, if you're looking into purchasing a book on real estate investing, 50% of the books that have been published are published through you know, our publishing arm. In addition to that, uh, we also have a top 10 business podcast um, with around 4 million downloads uh, annually, uh, specifically talking about real estate investing. And then in addition, we have you know, YouTube videos and blog, blog articles and email newsletters and events, um, and then also just really engaging forums so that um, you can interact with other you know, either rookie investors or investors who are more mature in their life cycle. So it's just a very unique component of our business um, that, that's very comparable to you know, maybe another type of social network. But in addition to that, we have two other parts of our business, one a marketplace uh, uh, component, which we're connecting these investors uh, to professionals in the space. So we're connecting investors to investor-friendly agents. We're connecting them to investor-friendly lenders and insurance brokers um, in home services. Um, and, and just providing general real estate listings as well that, that um, could help them in expanding their portfolio. And then lastly, we also offer a subscription product, which uh, offers you know, tools to help investors be successful. And some of those tools include property analysis calculators and rent estimators, uh, lease forms, uh, live events, et cetera. So it's a very unique business model and, and uh, largely why I was attracted to the opportunity because um, I haven't come across another company. And I know there's others out there that have really those three legs of a stool 
um, and, and are able to create a pure market network. You know, it's not just a marketplace business. It's not just a subscription business. It's not just, you know, a, a social network with content. You know, we have actually been able to connect all three in this really unique ecosystem. Yeah, and definitely. And, and obviously real estate's like super hot right now. Um, there's a lot of people that are interested in it. So I'd love to hear like, what trends are you currently seeing in real estate and where do you think the market is headed? So I, I definitely not have a crystal ball, <laughs> uh, sure. but the housing market, you know, remains far from normal. Uh, inventories are 30% below last year. Right? The, the current supply of homes in the market is an all-time low. Um, it's as low as it was back in the turn of the century. And then also with the recovering economy, there's more demand. So we have more buyers entering the market. So just from a pure supply and demand standpoint, you know, I would expect home prices at least to continue to rise. I, I don't see you know, any type of near-term correction just purely based on supply and demand dynamics. Um, you know, prices may moderate at some point in time, um, but I think we are in a very unique environment where owning a home or investing in real estate is a very attractive uh, asset choice for personal investing. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, especially the younger generation, right. And I don't want to be biased here, right. Or just, you know, just assume this is across the board, but it seems the younger generation, especially they put a little bit more trust into real estate than like equities. Maybe it's not just the younger generation. Maybe people like the idea of having something tangible that they could touch, they could feel, they could visit versus like, an equity that can just disappear, that could go down to zero, right? Sure. Uh, do you do you see that as a trend, as a true trend, where people put a little bit more trust in in the real estate asset class versus uh, equities or bonds or or other type of financial instruments? You know, I, I think so, and and that is absolutely a cohort um, of our addressable audience that you know we are trying to you know attract and and uh, you know. My boss, our CEO, actually wrote a book called Set for Life that uh, is specifically tailored to that younger investor and how to invest in real estate early. Personally, I invested in real estate very early um, in my career, um, actually while I was in college. Um, and it's, you know, and my investments in real estate have paid out much greater than anything I've done on the equity side. So, you know, it is a it's a levered investment that's tangible. So if you have the liquidity to make that investment, there might be a little bit more risk because you're not as diversified. But that being said, you know, I think it's a really interesting option for you know, young uh, individuals to get into investing that has the potential for outsized returns because you have some control over the asset versus you know, in an equity portfolio, you, you may manage the risk in what you're buying, but in a real estate portfolio, you you own the asset, you determine how much you want to invest in the asset, you know, what your rent rates are, where you want to invest. I just, I just think there's a little bit more control. And that might be why you know, the younger audience is, is more attractive to that type of investment. Yeah. And, and that, that makes perfect sense. So let me ask you this. I mean, you know, part of strategy, part of like running a business operations, everything else, you have to be obsessed with the customer. I think we established that 
but also you have to be somewhat aware of your rivals, of your competitors. And it seems like in this space, it's so easy to just be a talking head, right? You could come in and be this real estate expert. And in fact, like sometimes I'll watch YouTube videos and little talks and, and, you know, you get the ads that pop up and it's like the ads are either, you know, people who are life coaches, right. And they're trying to coach your way to success or, there's people that, you know, have the, how to become a millionaire hacks, you know, that, that they'll, they're trying to pitch to you or whatever. And then you have like the real estate folks that are like, Hey, you don't need any cash. You can invest in real estate. You can be super successful and, and look at me. I'm driving this Ferrari, whether it's a Ferrari or not, but you know what I'm talking about. So like, do you feel like there's a lot of competition in the space and people are trying to come in and they're trying to mimic the business and they're trying to take away you know, the eyeballs that are pointing towards your company and, and how do you deal with competition and, and think about it overall? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a lot of influencers in the space. No one is amassed the audience that we have. And I think the reason why is because we're very honest with our investors. If you attend one of our webinars, you know, some of our talent will talk to the audience about, Here's a liquidity profile you need to get into real estate investing. If you don't have a liquidity profile, it's probably not a good option for you at this point in time. Um, so there's, you know, I think a lot of good candid feedback from, you know, what we deliver from a messaging standpoint um, versus, you know, some of the other influencers that are out there that are really attempting to sell, you know, some type of mastermind class at a very high price point, and fundamentally their only goal is to uh, monetize the investor, right? You know, sure. our goal is, is fundamentally to give investors financial freedom. Um, and actually part of our company's vision is to create over 100,000 millionaires. Um, that's actually part of our mission statement. So, you know, I, I just think, you know, that yes, there's definitely competition and small influencers that are attempting to monetize, you know, certain real estate strategies, but we wanna be a comprehensive solution um, and be very you know, open and, uh, and candid and, and give all investors and arm them with the right tools and resources to make their own decision. And if they, if they need more support, we can offer that support. So, you know, I kind of span the spectrum. Um, and I think that's probably our competitive advantage. That's great. And I love what you guys are doing over at uh, Bigger Pockets. And I, I think you add tremendous value to your audience. So great work there. Let, let's switch gears here for a second. What if somebody's listening to this? And let's say they're either in a CFO position or maybe they're a controller and they want to move up and take on that CFO position, but they just feel so stuck because they're just so caught in the compliance transactional world that they are like, I hear you, Aaron. I hear you, Steve. Like I should be focused on value creation, the value drivers, the customer. I hear you, but there's so much pressure and so much demand on me just to like do the reporting and, you know, be compliant in this area or, or handle the audit or, you know, whatever it is, all the, the different things that, that pop up. How does somebody like transition to become like this strategic CFO? I mean, do they, do they have to switch jobs and just say, Hey, I got to go somewhere where the environment and the culture will allow me to be successful. Or do you think there's things that they could do to just say, Hey, stop, like, stop. Like I get that these things are important. We have to do it, but we also have to free up time and resources to be more strategically minded, or we're going to keep going in circles and keep being stuck? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, and look, I think time is fundamentally your biggest asset um, and your largest investment. And how you spend your time is, uh, is the most important aspect of probably your career. 
And, and if you're in a situation in which, you know, you're doing uh, housekeeping items or blocking and tackling all day to keep the lights on, you know, that's probably not the right allocation of time. You need to dedicate time within your calendar, whether it's, you know, through the traditional work week or, you know, on the weekend to thinking through breakthrough ideas for the business um, and, and, and looking at the data through a different lens. In a financial um, capacity, you have more access to the business than just about everyone else. So based on that level of access, you likely have the ability to create a data-driven insight that no one else will come up with. Um, And I think allocating and carving out time in your calendar to be able to drive that and deliver breakthrough ideas through data-driven insights will absolutely augment your career. And if it doesn't, then you're definitely in the wrong place and you you probably should look at other opportunities. Um, But I do think, you know, it's critical that everyone is carving time out on their calendar to think through, you know, what, what is, what is the next thing for the business? What's game changing? You know, what, what can we do to, and and, not just what's great, what's game changing for the business, but how do I even make my time more efficient? Um, Are there reports that aren't being used? That's, uh, taking up a tremendous amount of time uh, throughout the business. Uh, there, there, you know, so there's operational optimizations that you can make too to create that time. But you know, I think having that focus on time management throughout the day and throughout your week is critical to being successful you know, as a financial professional. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. So let me ask you another question here. Um, look back to your 20-year-old self. Go back to 20-year-old Aaron. Um, knowing what you know today, what advice would you give to him? Yeah, great question. Uh, so, I, you know, I think I'd say, you don't know everything, Aaron. Um, I think when I was 20, I probably thought I knew everything. And, uh, I, you know, I'd say, look, spend time with core competencies that are probably not your strengths, right? Finance is only interesting to a handful of people. So, you know, I, I spent an enormous amount of time learning every aspect about finance and strategy and creating value. But there's other core competencies that you should spend you know, your time on as well. And for instance, throughout my career, some of the most brilliant and successful people are exceptionally skilled at both sales and finance. So you know, I, I probably tell myself to equally invest in, in both of those skill sets. Um, and, and to really, you know, round out, you know, what you bring to a business, um, not just from a financial standpoint. So, you know, that being said, I'm, I'm also just thrilled to be where I'm at. And, uh, you know, at this stage of my career, I just feel very fortunate to have good mentors and leaders to help me get there. But yeah, I, I, I think fundamentally just giving myself the advice to, you know, focus on areas that, you know, might not be a core competency and, uh, and, and areas that might not be a strength um, or areas that may not have passion about because later on in life, they, they become very important. Well, and I think you're absolutely right because like you said, you know, strategy or finance rather is at the, the core of the business, right? I mean, you, you can see behind the curtain, right? You know, all parts of the business. And if you can build competencies or at least an understanding and have empathy for other parts of the business, okay, what does sales deal with? What about, you know, HR, what about operations? You know, and you start understanding all these different functions of the business, then you could be that much more effective in helping to deliver value in all parts of the company. And I think that's so critical. Absolutely. 
And I also think like what you said before, it's interesting how sometimes, you know, especially when we're younger, we think we know everything and we can become very dogmatic, right. In our opinions. And I think that's very dangerous. And that's something that I'm definitely working on is just, you know, challenging my assumptions and really thinking through like, okay, why do I believe this is true? And what could be another perspective or another angle on this, you know, ideology. And I I think there's a difference between doubting ourselves because we don't want to go around like doubting and second guessing, you know, our decision-making all the time, or we're just, you know, going to be more stuck. However, I think if we fall into the trap where we think we're always right, or our idea is always the best idea, we could really get into some trouble. So I think you're absolutely correct. It's taking time to sit back and really think through like, what am I missing here? What other perspectives would be useful to bring into this decision-making and, you know, how do I focus on the things with the greatest upside? And, and those are just some things that I captured and I'm walking away with today from our conversation. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Completely agree. It's great. Great feedback. Well, congratulations on everything that you're doing at Bigger Pockets. You know, like I said, I, I think what you guys are doing over there is um, extremely valuable and you're touching a lot of people's lives. And I think, you know, in the area of real estate, they they need somebody out there who provides, you know, great advice, great resources and tools to help them succeed. And, and I love what your, uh, you know, your whole purpose and your mission is about over there. So keep up the good work. Thank you for being on the show today. It's been a true pleasure, Aaron. And um yeah, I'm just excited for uh, what the future holds for you. Great. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Steve. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best.